The Bible gives different portraits of Jesus, and probably the most memorable one is the one that we get in the Gospels. Jesus, the Palestinian rabbi, Jesus, the one who walks among the people and gently works his will and teaches them and heals them and ultimately dies on the cross for our sins, a a rather passive and uh, servant-oriented picture of our Lord. If we would fast forward to the book of Revelation, we see a very different picture. In three different places in the book of Revelation, he is the powerful and triumphant warrior son of God. He is the Joshua, the second Joshua, who defeats all of his enemies ultimately and conclusively. This morning's passage, we get just a little piece of that, a little insight of that, a little snapshot of that other Jesus, the same Jesus, but manifested in a different way as we look at Mark chapter 11 and verses 15 and following. There's a sermon outline on pages 8 and 9, and please follow along now as we read from Mark chapter 11. You remember last week he came into the holy city, he was on the donkey, he was graded by the crowds, and now we read in verse 15 that on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, "'Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations?' But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. May we pray. Lord Jesus, help us to see you this morning in all your glory and power. Help us to love you this morning in all your gentleness and grace. Help us to serve you this morning in all of your commands and decrees. And help us to thank you this morning for all that you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a scene we remember from years ago, from Sunday school maybe, all the way back with Jesus getting angry, Jesus overturning the tables, Jesus throwing the moneylenders out of the temple. It's a very strong scene and very much, as I said, in contrast with the Jesus that we see in the rest of the Gospels, where he responds less dramatically even to sin and to unrighteousness. We look at the context of this event and we know that these people were allowed to be there on an ongoing basis. They were not chased out by the Pharisees. They were allowed to prosper by the Sadducees and those who were having anything to do, the Levites had anything to do with the worship of the temple because they performed an important function. They met a need. As they say in the outline, the sale of animals for the sacrifices was an established procedure at the temple. It was more convenient for the pilgrims who came in from the countryside to buy an animal already certified as suitable than to have to bring an animal a long distance that would be subject to inspection for use. So you know the story. The, the, the Old Testament prescribes that the animal must be of a certain age, must be of a certain spotlessness. It must come related to the wealth and position of the person. It must be proportional and appropriate. And they are to bring their animals into the, worship, into the temple where there is a grand altar, and there the priests are 
indeed conducting something of a butcher shop as they take the animals from the people, place their hands on them and dedicate them to the Lord, representing them as substitutes for their sin, and then killing the animal and seeing that it is entirely burned up upon the altar and the fires there. Blood was running everywhere. It was a noisy and chaotic sort of place. Lots going on. And you can imagine that the children's eyes were wide open. No one was sleeping. There was a lot going on. It was very loud. And in order to accommodate this, for there were people from Jerusalem could come quite easily, but people who came from a distance had to drive their animal, carry their animal, transport their animal in some way, always with the question, if I bring this particular animal, will it be accepted? Will it be approved? Well, this particular setup allowed that problem to be resolved. The middleman was found, and the middleman was approved by the Levites. He was approved by the Pharisees, and they were allowed to sell within the proximity of the temple these animals to the pilgrims who were coming. So the overall practice was approved and understandable, but it had become corrupted. And Jesus is, is addressing that when he says, you have made my house into a den of robbers. Evidently, verse 17 indicates that there was swindling and extortion going on. Exorbitant rates were paid. Animals perhaps were approved by the priests and then others were substituted. Less valuable animals were substituted. We don't know the whole nature of it. Maybe they didn't give proper change when you, know, you gave them a a denarius, and they gave you less than the right change. Somehow corruption had, had manifested itself, and no one was able or interested in stopping it. So he comes. And as he comes into the city as the king and the Messiah, he comes in also as the great high priest of God's people. And he comes to the temple now as that king. But what does it mean? What is he trying to do? Is it just a matter, I don't think so, of just the swindling and the corruption? He's trying to teach a deeper and a more profound truth to us about who he is. We read in the scriptures several things about the temple. There's a whole section of it in the, in the book of Moses, of course. And we read pa- passages like Psalm 63, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Or verse Psalm 27, One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the temple of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This was a place to meet with God that he had given to them. First the tabernacle, then the temple, was a gift to the God's people to say, this is the place where you can come and worship me. Now you can worship me out, out in the in the countryside as well, but this is one place where I promise that I will be there. It is his gift to the people. They worship in spirit. They serve an invisible God, but he gives them a building, first a tent and then a more permanent structure at which to gather for worship. And so, as I say, the meaning of the temple is essentially, first of all, personal. He wants his people to come and meet with him. Now, they can do this on their own, but 
he calls them as a picture of how it is that he wants to relate to his people by saying, you come to me, you come to my place, you come at the time that I specify. And of course, he's very specific about when and how to do this. And I want you to be personally engaged in meeting with me. I don't want you to just bring your animals. I don't want you to just go through the motions. But I want you to come and be personally engaged with me. This is the place where God met man one-on-one. -on -one. Now, as I said, you can do that in the countryside, and certainly Jacob wrestled with the angel and worshipped the Lord at Bethel, and Joseph worshipped the Lord when he was in Egypt. But he calls for an intensity and a personal connection related to his building that we were supposed to go and know him personally. There was the Shekinah glory that's mentioned there, his presence was especially promised to be there. The Holy of Holies was there. So come and meet with me. I am here, and I want to dwell with you. But you must come on my terms. You can't just come when you want to. There are certain specified festivals and feasts throughout the year. You can't just come bringing your own personal requests and offerings. You have to bring what I require. Different animals, depending on your position in life. Different times of year, there were wave offerings and grain offerings, as well as animal offerings, etc. I want you to come on my terms. I want you to come to my house, and I want you to meet with me. Of course you can meet with me elsewhere, but I want you to come to me in this place, which I have given for you. It is for you. It's not for me. I don't need any addition to my glory. And it may be a grand and glorious building in the instance of Solomon's temple, but it doesn't add a, a thing to my position. I want you to come to me for your sake. And so we should see the temple not as just a formal and exterior structure and these sacrifices simply as something to do. This is a seeking of a relationship from the Lord who gives this beautiful place to say, I want to meet with my people, and I want the experience of worship to be a grand and glorious thing. I want you to benefit from this. I get nothing from it in the sense of adding to my glory because my glory is already supreme. But I want you to come to this place, and I want you to meet with me here. And so come, come, come. It's, so it's personal. Secondly, it's also provisional. As I say, you must come to God on his terms, and he alone is sovereign. And I'm, he's making a, an, a, um, a partial, as we'll see in a moment, a, a, a provisional request for their benefit. He is the sovereign one, and he wants to make it happen. But as he does, it's partial. It's a place of temporary provision. The, the temple was never to be the final resting place of God's people. It was part, when they were in the tabernacle days, it was part of their journey in this life. As they came to the temple even later, it was a foretaste of Jesus, as we shall see. A foretaste of what he will do. And so coming to the temple meant that we were looking forward to one who would come. These sacrifices would be offered... And you could get pretty close to God, but you couldn't get all the way in. You came to the temple, you prayed, you met with the Levites, but you always knew 
that there was a Holy of Holies back there, this special room that the high priest alone went on one day a year on the Day of Atonement, and you can't go there. So the temple is not a full and complete access for God's people. It's only a partial and provisional one that will one day be fulfilled and, and superseded. To this circumstance, Jesus comes and expresses the strongest disapproval of his entire earthly ministry that we have recorded. He really gets upset. He throws them out. He upsets everything they're trying to do with their commerce and their position, which until then had been acceptable to everyone. Jesus probably cleansed the temple on two occasions, but he made a visit to the temple several times. And yet, Jesus, the great leader of a religion so-called, the great worldwide prophet, the great king of men, is found at the temple relatively rarely in the Gospels. He visits it as a little boy, you remember. He visits it on the occasions of the feasts and festivals that are required in the Old Testament. But all in all, generally speaking, he's not to be found in Jerusalem. He spent his time in Galilee. He spent his time out in the wider reaches of Palestine. He was not closely identified publicly with the temple. But if we look closely, we'll see that he's central to it. Why is Jesus cleansing the temple? Because he sees inauthenticity. He demands a spiritual reality. And he sees something in these practices and in the hearts of the people involved in these practices that is just superficial. Run-of-the-mill, day-by-day, just marking time. The sellers and money changers were not worshiping. Worship takes concentration and envelops the whole person. So they were the ones who were on the edges of things, but not participating. And it seems that part of the reason he was upset with them was because they were just serving, a, you might say, a commercial function. They were not themselves engaged in the meaning of these animals and looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And the meaning of this cleansing is that Jesus is looking for sincere worshipers. Worshipers, as he said, who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And these people weren't. That's part of it. Do I really pray? Is there a real connection with the Lord in my home and in this building? Will I let him rearrange the furniture of my life? Will I let him do what he wants to do? That's what true worship involves. It involves submission. It involves offering all that we are to him so that he might work in and through us in a marvelous way. Not just go through the motions. Not just pray because others are or because we should. But pray with a real connection with him. It seems that these men were at least a picture of inauthenticity, a picture of a problem. And secondly, he asserts his authority. He says, this is my house. And in my house, we will make a, a house of prayer. I am, he is here identifying himself with the Father. He's doing the one thing that will get him killed, as it says in this passage. We are going, if he's going to make these claims, then we are going to kill him. The time of God's coming to you is now. He gave us the right to be the children of God so that we might have access to him. And Jesus and his authority 
are secondary to the money changers. They don't recognize him when he comes in. They don't step aside and, and acknowledge his role as redeemer and as great high priest. They had gotten inside and they were pushing God away. How about you? Has anything gotten inside your heart to, to be a rival with the Lord? What has gotten in there to cause difficulty and trials? Anything that gets inside too far and tries to take the role of our lives, of God in our lives, causes destruction and, dist- and trouble. So he comes because, and, and casts them out because there's no authenticity in their worship. He comes and casts them out because this is his house and they are not recognizing him as the true God and as the one who is the Redeemer and the one who would be the, the, the actual fulfillment of these sacrifices. And he comes because he is their advocate in declaring that he is the temple and that the building points not to man's worship but to the Lord Jesus himself. By what, are do, what, by what authority are you doing these things, they ask him. Jesus says, this is my house. This is my place. I have bought it. I have paid for it. It is mine. This problem is an old one in his life. It's one that has happened, uh, that happened a long time ago. In the beginning of his earthly ministry, he says to the Pharisees, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. This is in John chapter 2. And they said, what does he mean, destroy this temple? This huge building, is he going to destroy it? And then they began to understand that he was talking about his body. That he was the temple. And of course that was impermissible. No way could that be accepted. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in in three days. The temple was a good thing, but he's about to replace it because he has come and he is the real temple of of the Lord's people. The veil of the Holy of Holies is about to be ripped away and a new and living way is about to be opened through his body and blood through the Lord Jesus Christ. So here he is declaring himself to be both king and high priest who presided over the temple and the worship of God Yet even here, late in his ministry, the full messianic nature of his ways and his actions are veiled. So we have the Lord Jesus coming into this place, which points to him. He comes home to this place and he is unrecognized. And the people are going about their business as if there is no Messiah and as if his identity is unknown. He comes in and asserts his identity and says, this is who I am. And these are my people and this is my place. This is my house. And I want this to be a place of worship of me and not of the gathering of animals and going through the motions. Because I'm the one who is the true temple. And without me, there can be no forgiveness of sins. There can be no payment of blood. There can be no resurrection from the dead. John says in chapter 1 that Jesus came and dwelt among us, the tabernacle among us. He, he was the tabernacle. He is the temple as well. The fulfillment of all of its promises and the centrality of all of its power. This he asserts when he goes in and rather surprises us with the fury and the, and the passion with which he cleanses it and casts away the unrighteous. 
Some people are hearing and understanding this for the first time, and it is true. But some of us are hearing and understanding it for this, and again, and this is that Christ is our sacrifice, and he is making it clear. He has come to this point in his life, which is the high point of what he came to do. He has come to the place of delivering us from evil. He has come to the place of breaking down the dividing wall between us and God. He has come to bring access to the Holy of Holies. And he has come to do it by his body and by his blood. In so doing, he is performing the most precious and highest act of his, of his life. He started off, of course, as a child. And, they, and he said to his parents, didn't you think I would be about my father's business? And now, in this moment, in the highest way, he is opening up access to the father. An access that before was possible only because of the blood of animals, goats and bulls and birds. But now is possible because of the blood of the Savior which is acceptable to the Father and which is appreciated by us down to today. So if Jesus is the temple and it's not just a building, then in this New Testament era where the temple has been destroyed, our worship takes on a different style and a different approach. It is a spirit of truth and, and worship that is inward and not outward. We don't have a problem with money changers today. We don't have to worry about the animals because Jesus has opened this new and living way that doesn't require them anymore. And the whole book of Hebrews tells us that he's the fulfillment of these Old Testament practices. But we still worship nevertheless. And we do so from our hearts. So this building is not a temple. It's not even God's house. It's the people of God's house. It's where we meet with him. It's where we stand before him and he works and, 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 and he wrestles with us here. But we can do that at home. We can do that other places now. We're no longer confined to Jerusalem, confined to a building, because Jesus has broken all of those confinements and opened up for us an access that is truly life-changing. So out go the money changers, and out go the rivals in our hearts to him. Well, what comes back in? Jesus said, if you sweep a house clean, you better be careful, because seven times more spirits might come back in. And if we no longer have to worry about money changers, what is it that we must face, and what challenges us? And of course, it's the rivals that Jesus has in our hearts the things that we would love more than him, the things that attract us and pull us and entice us more than he does, the praises of this world, the comfort of this life, the pleasures that we might enjoy, the acclaim of men. These are the things that we seek when he says, I am your sufficiency. I am all you need. I will give you position and place and power and inheritance all of these things shall be yours through me. Be satisfied in me and worship me alone. Worshiping him alone is not easy. 
for others around us and in our own hearts, there are many other things that would attract. But he says, let's be clean. Let me cleanse the temple of your heart. Let me sweep away those distractions. Let's push corruption and selfishness out of the picture and walk with me. Come follow me, he said in the early days of Mark. And the disciples left their nets and left what they were doing, the money changers, and they came and followed him. Today and in these days, we also follow him. But we do it from our hearts because he's not here on the earth to lead us in physical nature. And we do not have a temple in which to, to uh, worship him. We are satisfied with his walking with us inwardly. And that's where the strength and power of the Holy Spirit comes in. That's where our power comes from. We can't get it from an outward appeal. It comes from the the inside. So, as we reflect upon this memorable instance of Jesus cleansing the temple, we want to remember that this was done for us. It wasn't just to get rid of the money changers. It wasn't just to punish some evildoers. It was to point us to the one who loved us and gave himself for us, who was the fulfillment of all the sacrifices, who was himself the temple, which would house the Holy of Holies, that would give us access to God. This is a special privilege and can be lost in the violence of the moment here in Mark chapter 11. He was showing his passion and his anger because he's serious about sin. He's serious about inviting us into his life and personal relationship. He's serious about having made provision for our sins so that we might live forever. He is serious about walking with us through this life, and he wants us to be engaged with him and not just go through the motions. May the Lord enable us to repent from going through the motions. May he enable us to repent from allowing other things to crowd him out. May he allow us to repent and turn from our affection on other things so that we might serve him in spirit and in truth. May the Lord help us. May he cleanse our temple, our hearts. May he cleanse us and make us pure and call us to serve him in faithfulness. Let us pray. Lord, this day as we come, we acknowledge that we are like the money changers, much corrupted by this world, tempted and tried by Satan, and caused to follow our own hearts by our own willful ways. We thank you that you have been patient with us, that you are continuing to work your power in and through us. And we ask now, as we go from this place, that you might equip us to live holy lives, pure and entirely given over to you. Use us completely, we pray, and cleanse those things which are impure in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.